situation we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the South Radio Network. I'm Joe Quinn, and my co-hosts this week, as usual, are Neil Bradley. Hi, everyone. Harrison Keeley. Hello. And Alan Martin. Hi, everyone. This week, we are going to talk about stuff that has been happening in the news. So without further ado... No, this week we're going to, well, we are going to be talking about stuff that's, happening, that's been happening in the news, but we are going to be talking specifically about um, the recent, I don't know what you would call it, I suppose, uh, crisis. It's being referred to as a crisis. Uh, a purge. An unprecedented Middle Eastern crisis in, with Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, Iran, Israel thrown in there. Qatar. Yeah, so... Bahrain. Um, now, just yesterday. Wait. Yeah. But then, Middle Eastern, Middle East and crisis isn't exactly a uh, unusual thing to hear in the news. Uh, we would have been talking about the Middle East, referring to it with the word crisis for, uh, oh, about 70 years. <laughs> so uh, this is just one, the latest, let's say, in the ongoing Middle Eastern crisis. Uh, that part of the world apparently doesn't really know much else other than crisis. So uh, we'll be having a look at the, the specifics of the Saudi Arabia coup, as some people are calling it, or a purge, as Neil just said, and how it relates to uh, Lebanon and Israel and the <clears throat> the broader geopolitical shenanigans that have been going on for the past while, um, relating to the US, Russia, China, everything else. And as we mentioned this in the uh, blurb, uh, as you know, China... Uh, uh, Trump has been uh, on his tour of Asia, having uh, lots of fun, lots of laughs, lots of lols, uh, shaking hands with people that he shouldn't shake hands with, like Putin, his uh, partner in crime, and um, and doing lots of deals apparently, or so he would like us to believe. Uh, uh, the Chinese treated him very well. He is, after all, the leader of the free world. And apparently the American empire isn't collapsing just yet, uh, given based on the uh, on the reception that uh, that Trump and uh, Melania got. Uh, so we'll be taking a look at that as well, um, and what uh, what may or may not be behind it, or may, may or may not come out of it. So, without further ado, take it away, Mohammed bin Salman. Mohammed, Prince Aladdin, Prince the red, Ali, the red, the red Prince Aladdin, <laughs> the Red <Yeah>. Prince, <laughs> Prince Alad, Prince Aladdin. <laughs> yeah, um, I think this begins on. I think it was Saturday last week, the fourth. Yeah, right when when the news broke that um, first eleven people have been arrested in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, well, 11 princes. All, all and, royals and oligarchs, right? Yeah. Oh, and four of them were ministers. 
in the sort of informal cabinet or whatever they have for a government there. Yeah. Um, and then it just, well, it mushroomed from there. It went from one thing to the next. I think Monday was the um, astonishing scene with the prime minister of another country popping up on Saudi news to announce his resignation because of the undue influence of a third country, which is Middle Eastern. If nothing else, if this isn't anything new, it's an interesting snap, snap sort of insight into Middle Eastern politics and perhaps politics more generally. You know, you're getting, you're getting, we're getting with each new crisis or worsening of the overall crisis. You get a little bit deeper to how things actually work. Yeah. Well, and this is this is that. Well, this is actually something new for like Saudi Arabia, like um, for the last what you know, eighty years or something. Saudi Arabian politics hasn't seen anything really of this sort. With first of all, just the the irregularity of the line of succession for the the king, like the the kingship, the kingdom of uh, in in the country, where it's traditionally just been passed on relatively. Um, controversy free like the princes they kind of got they've got this kind of council that determines the line of secession and um generally all the kings have been like in their you know 80s because the uh prince or king abdul aziz like when was it like 80 or so years ago you know he had tons of sons and of course i think the 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 saudi royal family is now like something like 10,000 people 5,000 being male princes so theoretically, every one of them is an heir to the throne in some way, you know, once you'd um, figure out the, the whole line. But, of course, there are top contenders. So earlier this year, um, the, the the king, um, Mohammed, or no, Salman, um, changed the line so that uh, his son, Mohammed, would be the crown prince and took it away from this other guy. And so that was kind of irregular and because, of, of course, um, the current king is fairly well up there in, in age, and uh, Muhammad is like 31, 32, very young. So um, if he were, you know, he could theoretically become king any time, um, either if, you know, as a result of his father dying, or there have been rumors um, that the king is planning on stepping down and handing over, you know, rule, rule of the country to his son, Muhammad. And, at, you know, it's hard to know what to think about those rumors because apparently the, the, the way it became known was that the official kind of Saudi um, news outlet posted a tweet saying this and then like an hour later, later or something deleted the tweet. <clears throat> so they were actually the, the people to source this. Now, you know, it could have been just a, um, uh, an error or a strategic error to, um, you know, for some kind of information warfare warfare purpose or um you know who knows because that announcement hasn't been made but just the the fact that first of all this prince is so young and could be the king at any moment and also this kind of unprecedented um silencing and purging of his competitors because some of the princes involved that have been rounded up have been um, from the kind of competing lines of the house uh, of the royal family, like the uh, Abdullah clan and the the Nayefs and the what is it the Mukreen branch, like these were all um, 
kind of rival uh, branches of the family. And some of these princes, like one, uh, one, I think it was the the guy that was apparently, you know, killed in the helicopter crash slash shoot down. He was actually the son of one of the previous kings. So um, right there, a direct threat to um, to the crown, the current crown prince. So that was officially an accident, right? The helicopter officially, crash. Yeah, officially an, an accident. Um, all kinds of Middle Eastern sources are saying that it wasn't an accident and it was deliberately targeted by Saudi jets. Mm. Um, of course, now somewhere close to the Yemeni border, right? Something. Right on the border, yep, with uh, between Saudi Arabia and Yemen. And then, like a day after that news that this one prince had been killed, along with several officials in this helicopter, there's news that another prince. Can't remember the name of this guy because well, it's, it's so hard to keep track of you know the five thousand <laughs> Saudi princes. But this guy was apparently killed in a shootout when he, when Saudi police mm. basically went to arrest him, and he had you know he was in his his little uh, you know compound slash you know resort home or whatever in Saudi Arabia, and his security private security got in a shootout with the the police coming to arrest him, and he was apparently killed. Now, the Saudis, though, they deny that. They say, no, he wasn't killed. He's alive and well, but, you know, haven't given any sort of evidence for that. So one of the difficult things about this situation is that it's just so hard to get, um, uh, you know, real news of what happened just because there's so many. Uh, well, the the news is, is, is really tightly controlled in Saudi Arabia. So that's one thing. And then also just because of the fact that Saudi Arabia is like a big player, you've got all these other countries um, that might have their own agenda for putting out, you know, false information. And then once it's out there, it's like Saudi Arabia isn't going to, you know, release a whole bunch of documents or, you know, video or something to to prove their part of the story. So you get all these conflicting accounts. Um, but, you know, we can get an overall picture of the gist of what's going on. Um, one of Apparently the, it's, o- it's over 200 arrested now, right? Yeah, well, that's that's what I was just going to say, is that that's, I think that's the official figure. Um, 1,200. Yeah, that, that, numbers like that, too, 1,300. And, um, uh, like, I saw that on Voltaire Network. They were reporting that from a Middle Eastern store, source. And But one of the things that I saw on a more kind of um, <clears throat> mainstream source, I think it might have been Sputnik, it was one of the, like, news wires, saying that uh, the Saudis had said that they... Uh, well, they've released some of the, you know, the people they'd initially arrested, but that they had, um, they were interviewing something like 600 individuals, like basically brought them in for questioning. And that, you know, might have been part of those 1300. But anyways, it's a, it's a big number and they're holding all the people that have been, um, you know, arrested in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. So right when this went down, the, the hotel uh, management, you know, basically got word of what was happening. And so they asked all the guests to leave. So they basically cleared out the entire hotel and it's being used as like a, um, you know, temporary the gulag. facility. Yeah. Harrison, <laughs> Carlton Gulag. Harrison, did, did you just cite Sputnik? I believe so, yeah. <laughs> okay, we should, we should just clarify for listeners that Sputnik is a foreign agent of the Russian government. Okay, carry on. Uh, got me. Sorry, we have to add that blurb. Um, <laughs> yeah. But Sputnik or RT or any Russian source. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, oh, pardon me. And <laughs> therefore, it's very probably true. 
yeah. like, I just like Neil deprefaces everything he says <laughs> with that also because he is an agent of the Russian government. So <laughs> just uh, take it as read that anything Neil says is pure Kremlin propaganda. Uh, he, he's reading from a sheet that was given to him by Vladimir Putin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at APEC. Yeah. 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 In case you guys didn't notice, you know, um, I think you mentioned it, Joe, how how uh, Putin was uh, or Trump was filmed in an act of collusion, not only standing next to the devil himself, Vladimir Putin, but shaking his hand. And I'm pretty sure in that video you can see that you know Putin has Trump's marching orders written out on a little piece of paper, and you know he handed it over to him. You know it was kind Slipped of like. Yeah, it slipped it to him. He was trying to be sly, but um, but you can see it. So no, he actually had an electric uh, shock buzzer in his hand. <laughs> Putin did. I mean, only shocked Trump, but kind of sent him into Manchurian candidate mode. You know, mm-hmm. he gave him he gave him the keyword, and uh, he's now going to go and make America great again. Yep. Uh, for Russia. Anyway, uh, Saudi Arabia. <laughs> Saudi Arabia. One of the guys, the Red Prince rounded up was uh, the richest man in Saudi Arabia, right? Mm-hmm. Al-Talal. The oligarch, billionaire. Prince. Al- Alawid. Alawid, is that? No, Smokeweed. Smokeweed, um, which is very interesting. And this is the guy who owns like a 20% stake or so, or did own 20% stake in Fox News. But this week, while he's supposedly in prison in the Ritz-Carlton in Riyadh, he sold, in quotes, his stake in Fox. I'm not sure to who, maybe to Murdoch, but mm. he sold. Think, it sounds more like I was taken off his hands. No, I think that was actually, that was in in the week or two before the purge, he'd sold it. So there's some speculation that he kind of knew it was coming. Um, okay. so hard to know for sure, but yeah, he'd, he'd basically sold his shares uh, before. Well, what's what's been very interesting about this purge is uh, how it's been covered in the Western press is this kind of anti-corruption uh, effort on the part of uh, MBS uh, in uh, rooting out all of these uh, negative elements to the uh, to the Saudi government. Uh, very little on the idea that uh, basically what he's doing, mafia style, is is consolidating his own power and. Uh, and kind of, uh, you know, as you were saying earlier, Harrison weeding out all his uh, competitors. Um, what's amazing is, aside from the drama of it, is that it's got all of these wide-ranging implications and all of these other things going on in the background. Um, one of these things was a, a kind of a, a leaked cable um, on Israel's Channel 10 News, which suggested that... Uh, that Israel's government um, have all of its embassy workers in the Middle East kind of put out the word uh, to uh, ramp up the anti-Iran rhetoric at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. So this has been a this has been a big kind of um, simultaneous uh, uh, thing that's been going on is that uh, Israel's been ramping up the rhetoric against Iran. So is Saudi Arabia. Uh, MBS himself is, uh, is, you know, far from being any kind of reformer, uh, for Saudi Arabia. The guy is a, guy seems like a bit of a, uh, Well, when it comes to what reformer in what sense? Well, uh, it's clear that he isn't really trying to, 
make things better necessarily. Uh, that that would seem to be a, a very superficial narrative that that's custom made for Western consumption. Um, as we know, he's like one of the strongest forces for uh, for the war in Yemen, which has been disastrous not only for Yemen but for Saudi Arabia. It's a total quagmire. So you know the the guy is quite willing in his. Uh, megalomania style to to destroy anything that kind of gets in his way of of imposing his vision for Saudi Arabia in the Middle East. And well, it's a wonderful it's a wonderful example of um, of Western uh, hypocrisy and double standards. Because one thing we haven't mentioned since we've just been talking about Saudi Arabia is that Saudi Arabia is a dictatorship. So all this talk of um, you know reform and stuff and uh, and some good things happening, blah, blah, blah. Well, obviously not. It's a dictatorship, right? It's a, it's a it's a totalitarian dictatorship, and the only thing that it has going for it is that it has it has, it has oil, and it's a friend of 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 America, basically. So, um, you know, why aren't we talking about Saudi Arabia in the same way that the Western media is talking about uh, North Korea, for example? <laughs> well, they're, they're not. I suppose Saudi Arabia aren't. Uh, are trying to get their own, develop their own nukes, but uh, then Israel have nu- Israel has nukes, you know, and, and uh, I suppose that's good enough for Saudi Arabia because they seem to be best buddies, really. Israel and Saudi Arabia have been for a long time, but um, uh, yeah, just uh, I have to remind myself now and again uh, that Saudi Arabia is a fairly brutal totalitarian dictatorship, and it's best friends with America. <clears throat> yes, because you don't you don't you don't hear that. Uh, that's not the image that's presented of, of Saudi Arabia um, in the media, in the Western media. Yeah, I mean, uh, when Trump was campaigning, he actually came out pretty vociferously against Saudi Arabia. Uh, he, he talked about Talal, this billionaire's uh, influence with daddy's money. He made some comments on the on the idea that Saudi Arabia was a supporter of terrorism. Uh, and then he does this 180. Uh, in his first uh, diplomatic trip abroad, he goes to Saudi Arabia and does the orb thing with uh, the kings there, as we mm-hmm. discussed on an earlier show. Um, so what what's that all about? How does he go from really calling Saudi Arabia on its, on its shit to suddenly becoming this uh, vociferous uh, advocate for Saudi Arabia, sending uh, his own little princeling, Jared Kushner, uh, to speak with uh, MBS and these late night uh, pajama parties uh, that we've been reading about recently, uh, where Kushner would meet with Salman and, and have these uh, these bonding sessions just recently. Uh, so what's going on there? Petrodollar. There you go. Mm-hmm. If the U.S. did anything to seriously decouple from Saudi Arabia, it's over. Hyperinflation, economy's tanked. It's all over. Yes. And well, so, so I've got a question. So, assuming, let's just assume that uh, Trump was being genuine in those, you know, early tweets, uh, you know, about his opinion of Saudi Arabia, and because that seems consistent with, um, you know, the things that he's been saying for years now about his position on, for example, you know, Islamic terrorism and things like that. Assuming he's genuine about that, and 
I would think we can even see some indications that, um, you know, he's been at least partially successful in some um, policies in that direction, including, you know, the stop, the, you know, well, at least the official ceasing of um, CIA support for like the moderate rebel program, um, so-called in Syria. And around the same time that happened, that's when the, the Syrian army and the Russians started making big headway in, uh, you know, regaining territory from ISIS, for example. Now, so from Trump's, from Trump's position uh, in regards to Saudi Arabia, um, he would naturally want to, um, you know, keep that partnership. It's one of the things we've, you know, we said like, months ago about just politics in general and Trump in particular is that when you've when you inherit a system, <clears throat> you don't just needlessly, um, you know, cut off existing relationships that can benefit you in some way in the future. You keep the you you keep what you have and try to get more. And so with Saudi Arabia, the question I've got is, what might he have asked of Saudi Arabia? You know, or is it a case, or is it the case that Saudi Arabia is controlling Trump? You know, which way does it which way does it work? Is it an equal balance, or is or does U.S. really have the leverage. So that's a question that I'm interested in because, well, if we look at one of the, just a couple of the background bits of context in this, a lot of the princes and, uh, well, yeah, a lot of the princes that uh, Mohammed bin Salman just kind of neutralized have been not only, you know, totally in bed with the Americans, <clears throat> the Americans have been like their biggest supporters. Mm -hmm. So one of the guys was this Nayef guy that uh, used to be the, the crown prince. He was head of, I think, um, I think it was the intelligence services, um, either that or the National Guard, I can't remember, but one of the two. And this was, no, it was in the intelligence services in Saudi Arabia. And this was like the CIA's guy in Saudi Arabia. And so not only did um, Mohammed bin Salman managed to get the, the crown princeship from him. Um, now he's one of these guys that's been arrested. And so there have been a number of cases regarding these princes of these kind of apparently longtime U.S., you know, friendly individuals who have just been kind of taken out of the equation. Right. There's even rumors in the, in the past few days that uh, Bandar, Bandar Bush is one of the guys arrested. There's been no real confirmation of that yet, but Bandar Bush, I mean, they call him Bandar Bush for a reason. And this was the guy, correct me if I'm wrong, this is the guy that tried to um, bribe slash blackmail Putin back in at the end of 2013 about, uh, you know, before the Sochi Olympics, saying basically, oh, well, you know, implying that, you know, if you don't do what we want you to do, we can just unleash the Chechens on you because we control them. And Putin just said, uh, you know, go back to Saudi Arabia. Um, mm -hmm. So there's that to consider. So, so could could some of I guess what I'm getting at is could some of what's been what's going on be like um, almost like well Trump has said that he's has basically given his support to Mohammed bin Salman on Twitter um, for what he's doing here. Could this be something that Trump thinks is good or that Trump was somewhat in on, but that you know other people in the American establishment might not necessarily like? Or is it more complex than that? Yeah, I think, I mean, it was, as we talked about in previous shows, it, you know, it seems to be, you can't detach this, these events in Saudi Arabia from the events of the last two years 
in Syria mm-hmm. with, um, you know, it's very, it's more than a coincidence, I think, that they happened, <clears throat> that this happened right uh, at, a, at the time where ISIS was, was more or less destroyed in Syria <clears throat> and the, the Saudis were uh, a big part of that attempt to uh, use jihadi groups like ISIS to, uh, to overthrow the Syrian government, uh, that all went pear-shaped basically, and I, th- I don't think so. I don't think you can detach this from that uh, uh, from those events. And as we mentioned on last week's show, I think um, on previous shows that uh, it's it's basically I think Russian influence has a lot to do with with, with what's going on in Saudi Arabia, and it's possible at least that this certainly this was a kind of a coup or a consolidation of power into the hands of of one person or a select group of people in, in Saudi Arabia. And obviously it's whittling down these hundreds of princes. The whole idea that there's 5,000 princes in a country is ridiculous, you know. Anyway, so it's just, uh, Saudi Arabia was just a, a, a corrupt uh, Western kind of client state up until now run more or less by, by the West or, or by the US, uh, at least uh, indirectly. Or certainly they had heavily, heavy influence on in Saudi Arabia. And this could be a kind of a coup to consolidate power into the hands of this guy, MBS, and a few others. Um, and that it's for the purpose of Saudi Arabia being able to kind of be a bit more independent in the new Middle East, which uh, involves, you know, the things that we've talked about previously, the, the changes that have been affected uh, over the past few years uh, with Russia's entrance into the whole situation and the change in the balance of power in the Middle East. And I think this is, yeah, this is bad news for for America in general, not necessarily for Trump, but bad news for the U.S. deep state, basically. Um, of course, there's the Israeli angle in there as well. But like we said in last week's show, it's um, just because the Saudis, uh, MBS, uh, and this new Saudi regime, uh, our power structure uh, may be more favorable, looking more favorably towards Russia or doing business with Russia, doesn't mean that Saudi Arabia is going to uh, be best buddies with Iran. Uh, they're going to continue, obviously, with their rhetoric uh, against Iran because Iran is their major competitor in the Middle East, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously that's where they find common cause with with the Israelis. The Israelis are really a problem in all of this, you know, because of their agenda, basically. Um, they're, I mean, there's really the, the fly in the ointment and they always have been in the Middle East, really. Um, and th- they're, they're the problem, I think. Without the Israelis, it would be... Uh, the situation might be a bit more clear. The, the way way forward might be a bit bit more more simple or clear. But uh, yeah, don't underestimate the Israelis. Well, in addition to Iran, uh, both Saudi Arabia and Israel uh, share this uh, hatred and uh, demonization, along with the West and and the U.S. Now it seems uh, against Hezbollah, uh, which has been considered a called a terrorist group in the Middle East. Uh, they are based out of Lebanon. Uh, they've been around for decades. Um, what is little known about Hezbollah, aside from being this really strong counterforce uh, against um, Israeli incursion into Lebanon, is that they were a major uh form of help to Assad in repelling ISIS and Al-Qaeda in Syria. So Hezbollah is is something of um, an ally and a forward group uh, to Iran 
And one of the reasons why Saudi Arabia has recently also um, kind of made these these belligerent uh, statements and calling Lebanon the, the new enemy uh, of, uh, of Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is that. Um, just a couple of things about Hezbollah uh, that, that never seem to be uh, mentioned in, in Western media is that, you know, they're, they're not only this strong military um, force that's formed in Lebanon, but uh, they're very political. They're very active in Lebanese politics. Uh, they're also very uh, involved in social programs and education and um, and basically lifting uh, a lot of the Lebanese out of uh, any kind of cultural or societal doldrums that would have otherwise been, um, you know, by default uh, part of the system there. So, you know, to, to simply label them this terrorist group uh, in the way that uh, Trump or, or some other leader would say Iran is the largest, you know, uh, agent of terror in the Middle East is absolutely ridiculous. Mm. Uh, yeah. to, he- to hear the speeches of Nasrallah, their spiritual <clears throat> leader, the guy has a, as good a grasp of, of geopolitics, I think, uh, in, mm. in the Middle East as anybody. Uh, yep. And speaks very reasonably in, in assessing the situation there uh, most of the time. Mm-hmm. So um, you have that as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's interesting to look at. Obviously, um, there's been, leading up to this change in, in regime, let's say uh, regime change in Saudi Arabia, the uh, MBS said that, um, he said, what did he say? He said, uh, we want to live a normal life, a life in which our religion translates to tolerance, to our traditions of kindness, uh, traditions of kindness, yeah. Um, he said, honestly, we will not spend the next 30 years of our lives dealing with destructive ideas. We will destroy them today and at once. <laughs> uh, uh, now, that's pretty pretty radical for Saudi Arabia, you know, um, but... It, it smacks of a, it is a sea change in, in, in their attitude. If it, I mean, it could be only in, only that's only the words, you know, you have to see the actual actions behind that. But it smacks of, of kind of desperation and a, a serious reaction to a very definite change in, in the Middle East. Um, obviously, the benefits to Saudi Arabia uh, of, of taking this new moderate approach and, uh, you know, uh, welcoming people of all faiths to Saudi Arabia and not chopping their heads off, for example, um, is 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 a an appeal to the world type of thing to to see Saudi Arabia as a as, as a as a good place to be, a good place to come, and you know get international support to bring Saudi Arabia more into the international community in a certain sense, uh, make it more normalized, you know. And of course, uh, that could be a reaction to, like I said, the the situation in the Middle East changing and, and an attempt to basically. Um, to, to gain some ground uh, that they have lost uh, in, in the past couple of years to, to Iran, let's say, and to Iran's expanding influence in the Middle East. And, of course, uh, so Saudi Arabia really has been under under attack, I suppose, and it hasn't been. As, as America has fallen effectively or as America has suffered defeats at the hands of the Russians in the Middle East, uh, Saudi Arabia is feeling that pressure as well. Um, as America falls or as America rises, so does Saudi Arabia. Uh, unless they change their tune 
and reorient themselves. And that seems to be what they're trying to do anyway. Of course, uh, they're under pressure in, in Yemen as well. And part of the problem with Iran, obviously, is that they, they blame Iran for, which, which is probably a, an accurate uh, claim that they're funding the, uh, the Houthis in Yemen. The Saudis have been fighting with over the past couple of years as well. And just recently, there was a, a rocket fired at um, at the Saudi at Riyadh airport. It was shot down, <clears throat> probably by some kind of American Patriot missile or something like that. Um, but the Saudis blamed that, obviously, on Iran, saying that they had supplied the Houthis in Yemen with the missile. And but they also blamed Hezbollah, saying that Hezbollah uh, were the ones who provided help to the. Uh, to the Houthis to actually fire that missile, so that's why they said that, um, that this was that, that Lebanon had declared war, or Hezbollah had declared war on um, on Saudi Arabia, and obviously Iran has is always evil for Saudi they, Arabia. They whine when the same game they played and the rules they set up are used against them. And they, oh my God, you can't do that. It's not fair. Uh, no, it's perfectly fair. Well, you yeah. create Al-Qaeda, you create ISIS to use as proxies to boot out your neighbors. Don't be surprised if the same thing comes back to you. Well, yeah, but that's, I suppose that's normal for, for, uh, you know, they, also, they also said Iran is all over Hariri's. It's Hariri's fault. Um, it's Iran's fault that Hariri, I mean, that's <laughs> a load of BS. So, Saad Hariri on Monday morning is in a meeting in Beirut with a French government minister. I can't remember his name. I guess that's a regular planned meeting. I don't know what they're talking about. Apparently, he gets a phone call, gets up from the table, and just doesn't come back to the table. He's next seen without aids. He just flies, I guess, in a private jet and pops up in Riyadh, and he gives his resignation speech. Saudi Arabia immediately says, look what Iran just did, (laughs) when it's obvious that they just... Told him to get over here ASAP. Yeah, it's unknown where exactly he is. It's rumored to be holed up with the other prisoners in quotes at the Ritz Carlton in, in Riyadh. Um, Hezbollah have come out in their defense and they said, "Hang on a second. Wait a minute. This isn't us. In fact, Saudi Arabia just abducted our prime minister, and they're holding him against his will and made him say that." Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is obviously either a totally different version or cl- the actual truth. I don't know. Well, he didn't exactly didn't abduct him. Obviously, he went of his own of his own free will. Sure, um, but he's got some big ball and chain hanging around him. Obviously, well, he's yeah. Saudi well, he he basically grew up in Saudi Arabia and he he took over his dad's uh, his father's business. Um, in 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 Saudi Arabia, his father who was assassinated by. Israelis probably in 2005. Um, Rafi Kariri, he uh, he was a kind of construction magnet and a lot of business in in Saudi Arabia. He kind of made his fortune in Saudi Arabia. So when he died, his son uh, took over. And uh, so yeah, I mean, if you've got uh, construction construction businesses in uh, in Saudi Arabia, you've got uh, you're pretty much joined at the hip with uh, with the Saudi. The Saudi royals, basically, and I think in two thousand, when there was a, in two thousand ten or twelve or something like that, there was a there was a bit of a collapse in the construction industry in Saudi Arabia, and uh, Hariri 
kind of his company went down. One of his companies went down with it. We kind of owed um, a load of money. So there was a lot of... Four billion yeah. or something like that? Yeah, there was a lot of influence and, and ties ties to Saudi Arabia. But uh, it is pretty shocking that uh, that they could just... That he was such a kind of quizzling or such a... Um, such a stooge or such a puppet of the Saudis in Lebanon, uh, Saudis, uh, uh, him as, pri- as uh, Lebanese prime minister, that he could just be like told to get over here now and resign. <laughs> it's kind of farcical, like, you know. And blame Iran for it. Well, yeah, well, blaming Iran is like Israel blaming Iran for, you know, you know, stubbing their toe. Uh, well, like, it's, it's, like the, it's the Saudi version of the blame Russia thing, too. It's like, yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's the same thing in a sort of smaller regional scale. Mm-hmm. Blame Putin for everything. The Saudis blame Iran for everything. But there is some basis to it, but it, with a with a, a twist on it. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's not quite as I said that. Oh, now that the game is flipped and they're doing the same thing to you, you whine. They're not really. They're 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 using the battlefield as set up by the Saudis and others against them, like Russia's doing. So yes, the Hezbollah flag is is flying now on the border of Syria and Iraq. And they're not hiding it there. There's video footage of Hezbollah forces with Iranian proper forces. Well, not Iranian military, uh, revolutionary guards, but these PMC forces, PMU, um, working with Iraqis and the Syrian uh, Syrian state forces, liberating towns up and down the border. And yeah, the Hezbollah flag is flying there. But anyway, this is just... The chickens come home to roost. You know, what do they expect after 15 years of creating, of, of, of using proxy forces that others weren't going to fill in the vacuums left or be drawn to the fire you started mm-hmm. to put out the fire or put in their own control burns? I mean, it, you play the game, you're going to bring in all the consequences, all the players. Uh, they they can't they cannot actually whinge about it, you know. Well, well, Saudi Arabia has been in this exalted, exceptional position of of power and narcissism, uh, of doing whatever it is that they wanted to do for so long, uh, by mere by the mere fact of them uh, having such a um, a strong tie economically with the U.S. Uh, that they they live in this delusional bubble. Um, where you know they just don't know how to operate in any other uh, in any other way than 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 they have been for so long. And just getting back to uh, the petrodollar for a moment, um, you know, it, it's back in the seventies, uh, just after the U.S. officially through Nixon and Kissinger uh, depegged the dollar's value to gold. Uh, they came up with a scheme to um, peg the dollar to uh, petrol, to the to the commerce and trade of oil worldwide. Uh, and this was, a, you know, by some description, a very kind of brilliant maneuver uh, because Saudi Arabia, being one of the largest exporters of oil in the world, uh, made this deal effectively with the U.S., um, that that's that stated that uh, you know if you wanted to buy Saudi oil, you basically had to pay for it through U.S. dollars, uh, which made U.S. currency 
you know, the number one currency in the world and, and required by any nation on the planet who needed oil to use U.S. dollars. So uh, there has been this kind of symbiotic, parasitic relationship between Saudi Arabia and the U.S. for so long, uh, four or five decades now, uh, that that's propped up the U.S. dollar against all of it, all of these other kinds of, you know, the budget deficit and overspending, all of these other things that would that would knock another currency out of uh, out of commission uh, in a heartbeat. Uh, that's propped up the the U.S. currency. Um, so I think. I don't know. It's like somebody sat Trump down after he came into office and said, you know, you want to make America great again. If you go against Saudi Arabia and this relationship we've had with them propping up the petrodollar, which is the only thing that's keeping the dollar afloat now, uh, aside from printing more money, you're going to screw us. So uh, I think I think that's what kind of compelled Trump to change his tune on Saudi Arabia. And um and shifted his thinking into supporting uh, the Red Prince and whoever mm-hmm. is going to lead Saudi Arabia at this point. There, there's another way of looking at this, though. Um, it's not an either-or thing. So it could be that in Trump, there's a realization in the U.S. that the House of Saud, if things were just left to continue as they are, would crumble. Therefore, something needs to change drastically to keep it going, right? I mean, it's the same thing for Trump. He's not interested in an either-or situation where things are exactly the same or the U.S. just implodes into a black hole altogether. He would want to find a soft landing slash the best way out of some of some kind, you know? So I, I doubt he's, as the North Koreans say, a dotard on this issue. I mean, the petrodollar scheme is, is well-known. It's been written about loads. Everyone knows about it. So I'd say he he was aware of that coming into office, um, and that when he made a decision, well, a decision whether the decision was made for him or whether he made it to go to Saudi Arabia first, it was a signal that he knew about the importance of the petrodollar and the importance of the House of Saud not collapsing. He noticed that in his tweets last week, he's basically taking credit for this anti-corruption purge. Who has? Trump. But well, he's certainly lauding. He's saying it's great, you know. He's draining the Saudi Arabian swamp? Swamp? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they, well, if you look at the Saudis, just pure real, real politics, the Saudis have to adjust. They make serious adjustments just to stay as the House of Saudi, for the regime to be there at all. You know? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, well, well I mean, got, the Saudi... Go ahead, Harrison. And they've got to prepare for the future. Like, one of... Uh, one of you know Prince Mohammed's things is his whole economic plan. Um, you know what's it called? Something 2030. But he basically wants to revitalize the Saudi economy because, as it is, like again, looking at you know things either staying the same or changing, and you know um, anticipating the future, the Saudi economy can't continue on as it is. So he basically wants to diversify the economy in order to prepare for the future because other you know if things continue as they are, Saudi Arabia has no future. So he wants yeah. to do this whole, you know, economic thing and, this, you know, create this giant, you know, what, $300 billion city or whatever, how much it's going to cost. He wants, he wants to create, he wants to turn um, Saudi Arabia into something similar to the uh, UAE, you know, yeah. uh, which is uh, expat, expat wonderland, you know. 
um, and you know, so and attract a lot of lot, lot more people and uh, tourists and tourism to to Saudi Arabia, which probably doesn't have very much at this point. The UAE, on the other hand, has a lot, you know. Um, and yeah, the reason for that is because I think changing the changing situation in terms of energy supplies, obviously Iran now back out of the out of jail basically uh, has a lot to offer in terms of uh, oil and gas and there's a whole kind of growing slow growing turnover from uh, from gas to or from oil to gas uh, and Saudi Arabia doesn't have that much gas it's been a big oil 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 station uh, an oil pump for for a long time but it doesn't have as much gas certainly not as much as uh, Iran uh, and Qatar, who share that uh, oil field in the Persian Gulf, and that was kind of the source <coughs> of of Saudi Qatari uh, issues earlier this year. Um, and also, the Saudis are are seriously strapped for cash uh, right now. <coughs> That's why they're floating um, Aramco uh, on the uh, on the stock market to raise uh, a big load of funds. They're basically selling off their uh, their private their main private uh, oil oil company. It used to be an Arab American um, oil company, and they kind of retooled it to Saudi Arabian oil company. But it's basically uh, the, the main Saudi oil company, uh, and they're selling it off and hoping to ma- uh, generate a lot of money from that. And that's the one that Trump was trying to get uh, trying to get the Saudis to list on the New York Stock Exchange, at least in part. Um, so, uh, and also the Saudis have taken a serious hit over the past few years. Uh, when I think it was about two years ago now, that they. Uh, they seem to have conspired with the Americans to uh, to tank the price of oil by uh, overproducing in an effort to hurt uh, the Russians, basically, right at the time when the Russians had just uh, initially launched their campaign in Russia. It was an attack on, the, basically an attack on the on oil prices that drove it down to about $28, $28 a barrel, uh, which was difficult for the Russians, but the Russians... Uh, made a smart move by unpegging that a kind of soft peg as they call it they soft pegged their currency the the dollar but they basically unpegged it and um, the, the ruble and it was kind of free floating as they say and that allowed them to weather the um, the the drop in oil price over the past couple of years and they've rebounded now but the Saudis took a serious hit uh, in, in dropping and allowing oil prices to fall so much uh, at that time and for for a good year and a half or a year afterwards. Uh, but the Russians survived. It didn't work, didn't knock out the Russians, and the uh, Russians are back now. The oil price was always going to come back, but they thought this short-term drop would like be enough to really seriously hurt the Russians. It didn't, but it seriously hurt the Saudis. And as a result, you see the Saudis then, uh, more or less, you know, in, in, in the time scale that these things happen in terms of uh, the flow of, of uh, economic markets and stuff like that, uh, it's a pretty short period of time since that oil price the oil barrel of oil was down twenty eight dollars and now it's back up to forty, forty five, fifty, not even fifty yet. But um in a very short period of time since that happened, you see the Saudis uh, having to um sell off the oil company. Uh table plans for uh retooling their economy away from oil and into tourism and bringing all the good peoples of the world to come to Saudi Arabia to spend their money there. And I suppose we can't neglect the idea that basically this coup was an attempt to, uh, uh, you know, steal money or get money back from all of these corrupt princes that had been kind of running their own little sections of the Saudi economy, basically, you know? Yeah, up to $800 billion. Right. I mean, that's, I mean, if you look at those three things right there, 
um, that the, the selling off of the of the oil company, the retooling the country uh, country's economy around tourism, and, uh, and and this money they're getting from all of these uh, princes, this this kind of uh, imprisoning all these people and taking all their money off them. All of it says that Amer- uh, that Saudi, Saudi Arabians, the main the main point behind this so-called coup or purge, or whatever it was, to um, to make money to generate some in- income. Um, and right now and going forward, because the Saudis have, are, are basically cash-strapped in a pretty bad way, and uh, and they're pretty desperate, and it's not not good for them, and it's all happening at the wrong time because the Iranians are basically expanding their influence. The Iranians are, Iranians are putting pressure on them via the Houthis in Yemen, and uh, they just had to do something. And this was apparently the best idea that they could come up with, which was you know consolidate power around MBS, take all the money back into you know into the central coffers, and uh, and that's about it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, there was a recent statement made by a Saudi Arabian minister uh, that, um, you know, you, you're going to see some, I'm paraphrasing here, uh, you're going to see some incredible things happening in, in the coming days, which uh, pointed towards or suggested that uh, Saudi Arabia was going to take military action to back up all of their statements against uh, Lebanon, Hezbollah, possibly U- Iran. And so I'm wondering at this point, what is the likelihood that, uh, that this is going to be escalated even further in the form of uh, direct military action and Saudi Arabia uh, you know, directly attacking uh, Hezbollah in, Le- in Lebanon and or uh, even taking the, the battle directly into Iran? There was that... Um, there was that terrorist incursion uh, in Iran a few months back where uh, I think the mausoleum of, of one of their leaders was attacked by jihadis. And Iran pointed the finger right at Saudi Arabia and said, you're responsible for this. And they probably were. Uh, a pretty brazen and, and horrific attack. I think uh, a few dozen uh, Iranians were killed in that attack. Mm-hmm. Um, so... So can we, does anybody think we can expect uh, a real escalation and confrontation there? I don't think so. If it's all blood and blood, that's one of the most, that's one of the most annoying things about uh, stuff that has been going on over the past several years is that you've had wars and rumors of wars and that's all. Mm -hmm. And eventually when like the boy who cried wolf, you just go, you know what? You're full of beep. Because you know you can only say we're gonna we're, we're definitely gonna bomb that country if they don't this this is your last chance if you don't shape up you're gonna be in serious trouble we are hellfire and death and damnation for everybody and then you go okay they they don't seem to have taken your last chance or are you gonna do the hellfire thing well one more one more chance and this is the very last chance right now if you do not. You know, pull your socks up and sort yourself out. Serious problems for you. All right, I don't believe you anymore. Ooh. Oh, you're in trouble. You are in trouble now, boy. Just you. And then just people just walk away. See you later. All right, you just carry on there, and I'll just walk away from you. So, um, 
I think there's more of the same. I mean, that seems to be the tempo uh, uh, right now of, of international relations, which is who can, you know, give the most kind of, you know, blowhard, spittlefleck rant about how they're going to kill everybody and, and, and the world is on the brink of some annihilation. And everybody says, yeah, we're not on the brink of annihilation. You're on the brink of annihilation. We're going to annihilate you first. It's like a bunch of schoolyard kids, you know. It's like, uh you're just born me, born me to death anyway, you know, and uh, I don't see, I mean, obviously, uh, Saudi Arabia having a war with Iran doesn't really fit into their building their mega city uh, in, in the near future, you know, um, because, you know, if you're, if you've just been blown to, to hell, basically, you're not in really much shape to, to build any mega cities or, or bring in all the tourists, you know, yeah, let's, let's, let's factor that into our, our plan to retool the economy around tourism. Let's have a war. Let's turn our country into a war zone. That'll really bring the tourists. Um, so, well, you got to decide on one. Which which one? Which one are they going with? You know, is it, do, are you do you want to bring tourists or you want to have a war? Can you kind of get off the pot or, or shit or get off the pot? Basically, you know, please just do it. You know. Um, so I don't know. I, they don't, like I said, the only and I don't even see any way they can do it either. The only problem here is Israel. You know, but I think Israel is full of BS as well. You know. All these people are just, all these leaders of these countries are just in it for themselves. They just want to keep their positions, you know? And it's like if peace broke out or the rumor of peace broke out tomorrow, a lot of them might lose their jobs because you wouldn't need so many blowhards to shout about, you know, all these enemies and threats that we have. You know, you wouldn't need these people to protect the country. The defense industry wouldn't be getting so many, much, much money and there'd be a lot of uh, jobs lost in that respect as well. So in terms of drumming up business for, for your war industry, uh, you need to simply talk about war a lot and scaremonger a lot and say, I think the Russians are going to invade, uh, where are they going to, um, maybe, uh, I, I don't know, Italy? No, not Italy. Uh, Latvia? Uh, Hungary. <clears throat> One of those places. They're going to invade somewhere for sure. And we need to take more taxpayers' money and give it to the defense contractors who will then give it to the politicians who are the ones arguing for the war or, or, or the ones who are talking about the threat from Russia. That's a pretty... Uh, Pretty sweet game you got going on there, you know. Um, so that's, I mean, that's my kind of go-to place whenever, uh, uh, when I hear all this kind of rhetoric about and, and warmongering and saber rattling. It's basically these people; uh, they can probably every word that they utter publicly um, that has to do with warmongering. Each word is worth like a thousand dollars to them or something like that. You know, they probably have it down to have calculated how much money they can make for every saber rattly kind of word that they use you know uh, and that's that's how cynical that's how cynical my view of them is is that these people don't even have the cojones to actually have a war they're pathetic mm-hmm. they're just money grabbing corrupt narcissistic a-holes who should all just be pushed off a cliff somewhere <clears throat> well and the, and the thing that I think a lot of people forget when when worried, well, when speaking about Lebanon, for example, is that, uh, well, first of all, Hezbollah is extremely popular in Lebanon. And so there would be no real way of kind of dividing the population itself against Lebanon. Lebanon is, you know, fairly well united in that regard, um, in mm-hmm. the sense that most, you know, a lot, well, I don't know the demographics, but, you know, a lot of Lebanese 
consider themselves Hezbollah, you know, even if they're not, you know, militants or, you know, officially associated with the party, it's like considering yourself mm-hmm. a Democrat or something like that. Now, also, um, as regards any kind of future conflict, let's say Israel invading Lebanon again, well, you know, Israel got its ass kicked the last time they tried that by Hezbollah. And since then, Hezbollah has only gotten more powerful. And they've been at war for several years in Syria and winning. So they've actually become more effective as a fighting force. And so to think that, you know, they, that any kind, that they could try the same thing in Lebanon that they tried in Syria, well, they, they'd get the same results, only it would be a lot faster. You know, the, the, whatever proxy forces were sent to Lebanon would just be destroyed. And mm-hmm. you can bet that the, you know, the Syrians would help out too. And who, I don't know about the Iraqis, but you have this, you know, united front basically that is war hardened, knows what it's doing and can defeat, you know, any kind of, uh, you know, jihadi insurgency that, uh, that would pop up or, you know, mm-hmm. just another Israeli, uh, you know, invasion. So that's what I think of when I, when I hear these, the, the kind of warmongering is that it's, it's just all hot air. And when you actually think about the logistics, it just, you know, it wouldn't work. None of, I mean, none of it checks out, yeah. Like the, the only reason that Saudi Arabia could, or, you know, could probably even think about going to war in Yemen beforehand is that Yemen's the poorest country in the world. I mean, mm. it's like, you, you don't go to a, you don't, you don't invade countries that you, th- fight that you think, yeah, can actually fight back. Yeah. And, right. and when you do, you make a fool of yourself and hopefully you learn from your lesson. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the, uh, yeah, I mean, Saudi Arabia is pretty, uh, uh, it's, not, it's not in a very good position to be fighting with anybody, you know. Um, they have an American, you know, American military and stuff. And uh, I mean, most of their military is it, it basically a, a detachment of the American military is, is what the Saudi military is. But um, they're n- it would be they're a very precarious position to to fight any kind of a war against anybody could really fight back. Like I mean, you you blow up Riyadh, you just basically bomb Riyadh, and that's the end of Saudi Arabia, because most of the rest of the place is desert. You know, uh, you know, and if you're talking about a war with Iran here, Iran obviously is is you know uh, is is not the same. It's obviously a, it's a much more fertile country. Uh, Saudi Arabia has about 33 million people. Iran has 80 million people. Uh, Iran's a much bigger, uh, well, not much bigger, but in terms of uh, <clears throat> population, obviously, and, and places, cities, etc., uh, industrial uh, hubs and stuff, uh, uh, Iran is like blows Saudi Arabia out of the water in that respect. Like I said, Saudi Arabia is mostly desert. If you take out Saudi Arabia's one or two major cities, that's it. It's gone. Like, uh, but Iran is much would be much more difficult to defeat in that way. So there's, I mean, it's not a very even match. So who's who's Saudi Arabia going to go to go to war with? You know, and um, <laughs> the only people, yeah. like, the only people, they, the only people they can go to war with is a bunch of is a group of of, of basically tribes men uh, who are the Houthis uh, on the border in the northern in the north of Yemen, close to the border of Saudi Arabia, and they've been at war with them for the, for two years, and they and they still haven't been able to do anything about it really. You know, right. uh, and they're probably going to lose that war. Uh, and when all this is said and done, uh, it'll go down as a defeat for Saudi Arabia and their first real, you know, I suppose their first real war by themselves against someone and, and they lost, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, and as far as, I don't know, what's Israel going to do? Israel's in a very precarious position itself, uh, surrounded by people that has, has, apart from Saudi Arabia, you know, there's not many other countries, apart from Jordan and Saudi Arabia, maybe. There's not many other Arab countries in the Middle East there that are uh, would be 
you know, when it, if it came down to it, would take take Israel's side, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all looking really bad for the dominant powers, basically, over the past, you know, 40, 50 years in the Middle East, uh, aligned with America. It's looking really bad. And, I mean, that's, it was such a desperate move of them. I mean, if that's all, that's, is that all they've got, the Hariri thing? That was Saudi Arabia's kind of Trump card. We're going to take your prime minister away. And Hezbollah, like, oh, right, whatever. Well, um, and even then, the, like, we'll get a new one. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like with Saad Hariri, um, to me at least, it's really looking like more of an internal Saudi Arabian thing than anything really to do with Lebanon. Like the fact yeah. that he was Lebanese prime minister was just a, like a footnote um, because uh, Hariri is a, a like a dual Saudi Lebanese citizen and He's like four billion dollars in debt to the Saudi Kingdom because of his right. you know, the bankruptcies with uh, with his construction company. So, and he's he's owed debt to the to the Saudis for years. But because he's been the Lebanese prime minister, he's basically had diplomatic immunity from any kind of you know legal prosecution that they might level at him towards him. Mm-hmm. And so, so it looks to me they basically said, well, we can't do anything to Hariri while he's prime minister. So they get him back, they get him to resign, and now they can go after him and. Um, and plus, he was like best friends with one of those Saudi princes that that was killed. I can't remember which one. Um, you know, best friends and uh, and business partners. So the fact that he, you know they're they're tied business wise and it's a corruption thing. There, it looks like they're just they're going after her or they went after Hariri for the same reason that they were going out after the rest of these Saudis. Uh, and one one interesting bit of you know analysis, kind of opinion that I saw online was that. <clears throat> One of the reasons, probably, that they that they um, basically got Hariri to come back and have been keeping him so far is that if they were because they went after his best friend, basically Hariri, being uh, Saudi in Lebanon, would pose a threat from Lebanon in the sense that he could basically um, create a safe haven for any kind of fleeing princes, you know, fleeing the the Red Prince's wrath. And could start mm-hmm. kind of like a you know an, a group of exiles who are then plotting the demise of of the crown prince slash future king, and right. um, and so uh, you know Mohammed bin Salman just kind of wanted to nip that in the bud too. You know he he wanted them all in one place and he wanted them all um, you know arrested on Saudi you know in Saudi Arabia yeah. to prevent that yeah. from happening. Right, because yeah, Harari definitely could have worked worked against if he had been left in Lebanon. He could have worked. He could have changed coat, turned turned coats basically, because obviously he doesn't much, have much loyalty uh, to to his people or to the, the the will of the people in Lebanon, who are you know, as you said, are mostly supportive of of Hezbollah, and Hezbollah more or less runs the country. And uh, mm-hmm. no 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 prime minister is is elected in in Lebanon without uh, uh, Hezbollah approval, you know. Um, so if he saw things going down the way they've gone down in, in Saudi Arabia and uh, thought it would be better if he, if he changed coats again, uh, he could have probably done some, some damage, you know, at least uh, from a propaganda point of view against the, against the new MBS regime. So, yeah, like you said, they wanted him back there. And, you know, they were basically cleaning, cleaning up, you know, um, dotting the I's and crossing the T's in their, in their new, new structure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, 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 yeah. I mean, it, it was such a farce just for him to, <laughs> to do what he did. Um, mm-hmm. And I suppose it didn't, didn't. It, it annoyed Hezbollah in a certain sense because at least with the prime minister, like uh, it provided a, a kind of a level of, uh, of a certain level of legitimacy or an appearance of, you know, uh, 
that that Hezbollah wasn't the only uh, the, the main ruling party, the main the, the one with the with, with the major say so in in um, in Lebanon, and therefore the implication that it, they were just you know it was Iran basically Iran was running Lebanon with Hariri as the president, uh, as the prime minister. He uh, they could they could they could justifiably or plausibly say, well, it's you know it's not just about us, you know. So it annoyed them to that extent, but. I'm sure there'll be no problem. You know, the, the Lebanon government is still operating and just because Hariri, the fact that he went the way he went allows the government to continue because it makes clear that Hariri wasn't really a part of the Lebanese government in any real sense anyway, you know, um, if he could so easily be called and forced to resign in that way. Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah. and the the reaction to it seems like, it, it seemed kind of similar to me of the reaction of the Turkish people to the, the coup against, or the attempted coup against Erdogan, you know, in recent years. Um, in just in the sense that, like, the, the Turkish people really stood up, um, like, during the coup attempt and supported Erdogan because they saw it basically as a foreign, you know, a foreign-backed uh, coup against their leader. So there's a similar dynamic in Lebanon and even in, in Hezbollah. It's just the fact that Saudi Arabia did this, right, that would basically force his re- resignation in Saudi Arabia. It's like it's it's an affront on on Lebanese politics just, um, you know, on pr- on principle, basically. And so mm-hmm. so in that sense, they're they're right. And, you know, they've got a reason to to publicly, um, you know, denounce Saudi Arabia for it, even if. Really, you know, you know, they could they could probably find someone just as good as or better than Hariri for Lebanese politics. It's kind of just, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just see it more as, you know, leaning kind of on, on the scale of uh, of balance, just leaning slightly towards it being just kind of like a, um, how do you put it? Just uh, just like standard diplomacy, right? Where you have to say bad things when certain things happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, we've never. Say, yeah, I, I, I fear for my life because of Iran. Like, making yeah. that the reason. What well, did you see? Did you see? Did you watch his? Did you watch his? Uh, his interview? No. Uh, where, where he gave the resignation it was hilarious because first thing anybody who's seen videos like that uh, or other videos would think of would be those videos where you have a, a captive, a Western captive of, of, of jihadi group, you know, because he's got a piece of paper and he's obviously reading from a piece of paper and he's not looking very happy about it. And it's like, Black flag yeah, it, yeah, exactly. And some two guys standing there with knives is all, is all that was missing basically for him to... He was in the Atla- Islamic State. So after yeah. All. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's... Um, it's pretty pretty interesting, but there's also been some talk about uh, Hariri being uh, the son of one of the Saudi of the House of Saud, basically that he, he wasn't actually he wasn't actually Rafi Hariri's son. Uh, I think Terry Thierry Massan said that, and Pepe Escobar said it. It's a little known fact that he isn't actually a Hariri at all. He's a Saud, and um, <clears throat> I'm not sure they, they didn't provide any evidence for that's some rumor that's going around, but. Uh, the thing is, he's he's. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he doesn't. His father. If you look at his father, he doesn't look very much like his father, which is you know maybe you know plays into that. That as soon as someone doesn't look like their father, uh, people tend to think, uh, hmm, maybe he's not really your father, you know, because his father had big bushy eyebrows and stuff, and you think a uh, son. But then he had 
his father was married more than once, and his uh, uh, Hariri sad the, the son's uh, mother was an Iraqi, you know. So um, I don't know. I, I don't have any evidence that, that that rumor is actually true, and I don't hear anybody else uh, repeating it. So um, he has he has a big Saudi nose. He does look a bit Saudi. <laughs> You know, he could look like his mother who's an Iraqi, you know. Um, so, yeah. But the thing behind all this that, that really strikes me, you get a sense of it, is that you have this great Russian kind of mediator. I don't want to, don't you know, I want to, I don't want to uh, ascribe too much power and influence to to Russia, but I just get the impression that Russia is, <clears throat> you know, kind of, standing behind all of this and, and meet, has been mediating a lot of these things that are changing right now <clears throat> in the Middle East, has been mediating mediating them over the past few years and they're saying nothing, you know. You get the impression that <clears throat> a lot of these things that are happening are are very much part of a Russian plan for how things would go and they, they that they developed those plans a few years ago and it's all going to plan, basically, you know. Mm-hmm. And they're just saying they're not saying anything about it, you know. I mean, of course, that's Russian the way Russians do things. Um, it's uh, you, know, you don't gloat or you don't kind of grandstand when you win. Unlike uh, the Americans, you're you're not given to the Russians aren't given to uh, you know tooting their own horn and uh, bluff and bluster and that kind of stuff. They're they're quiet and they just get on with the job and they do it uh, very well. So that's why I tend to think that. Um, there's definitely a big, big Russian hand, apart from obvi- the obvious Russian hand in terms of uh, their, 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 their effect on the on the situation in Syria, which is really massive, you know, because we would be living in a very different reality now if Russia had not intervened in um, in Syria two years ago. You of all people, Joe. What? Well, the U.S. media has got to you. You're seeing a Russian behind everything. A Russian hand in this. Well, the thing is. That <coughs> I'm, yeah, but they're seeing a Russian hand where it isn't and talking about it. I'm seeing a Russian hand where I'm saying it is, and the media is not talking about this Russian hand. Oh, the other hand, the right hand. Right, the good one. Right. <laughs> well, that's true. Putin yeah, recently visited Iran and uh, has been, you know, quietly affirming its support of Iran uh, in, in, in just showing up there and visiting I think he's saying, you know, hey, you mess with Iran, you, you kind of mess with us too. Uh, we have a lot of important uh, geostrategic and economic uh, connections with Iran, and, and uh, we're not going to have you uh, starting nonsense without us getting involved in the way that we have with Syria. Yeah, that, mm. that, just, that just reminded me, uh, just kind of, of an aside, uh, I was reading recently the uh, Alex Craner's book, The Killing of William Browder, on the kind of Bill Browder Magnitsky controversy thing, yeah. oh, and he's got yes. he's got he's got this this little bit where he's talking about Putin and uh, kind of the things that changed his opinion about Putin because he the, the author used to just you know think everything that the mainstream media said about Putin, um, but then you know he started looking into it and one of the things it's from an article that uh, we we have on Saw we put it up probably a few years ago now um, just on Putin's character and uh, you know I think it was an American. Uh, who was interviewing a whole bunch of people that basically had done uh, done business with Putin or dealt with him? In American Scotland. expats living in Moscow right. and Russia, yeah. right? And th- asking him their you know their thoughts on him. And one of the things that uh, uh, you know a bit from 
from Putin's past is that they said, oh, you know, he was known in the schoolyard for, for uh, you know, defending defenseless kids from bullies. <laughs> Or, you know, he'd see a kid getting bullied and he'd, and he'd, you know, confront the bully and get them to stop. And so you see, that's kind of what Russia's doing today is, uh, you know, they see a country being bullied and they say, you know, not on my watch. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, just an interesting bit of news connected to um, Trump's kind of uh, back, uh, backwalking the Iranian nuclear deal recently. Um, I think... uh, is it Frederica Mogherini, one of the heads of the EU, uh, have have kind of come out and said no? You know that this this deal, as as it was put together a couple of years ago, is going to stand, and we're going to observe it. And uh, basically, we don't care what the U.S. says. Uh, so that's a kind of an interesting um, response to uh, to Trump's uh, recently uh, walking back the Iranian deal and and all of his belligerent statements. Towards Iran, um, which makes me wonder if if he's emboldened uh, and kind of uh, in some way empowered Saudi Arabia and Israel to ramp up their own rhetoric uh, uh, towards war. Uh, maybe they think that um, you know if something can get started uh, vis-a-vis a war in Lebanon and against Hezbollah, uh, that it would draw in the Americans. Um, so just, just a few interesting things there. And, uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit about, um, Wesley Clark's reading this, this kind of plan for the Middle East sometime, many times we've mentioned it actually, and Iran being on the list. Uh, we know that Iran is, is this kind of in the minds of the U S deep state, a, a stepping stone towards, um, towards destroying Russia. Uh, or bringing it under heel. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, I don't know if how much of this uh, talk on the part of Trump is just him being Trump, uh, or if this is because he was saying anti-Iranian things before he uh, was elected, um, or if it's just a coincidence that, uh, you know, that the, the U.S. deep state would love to see Iran demolished. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> um, well, they would obviously, I think, but um, uh, or, or like you said, brought brought the heel in a certain sense. But uh, the kind of cat's out of the bag now, and I don't think there, there's really anything these people can do about it, short of like you're saying, have uh, an all-out kind of war to start light a fire in in the Middle East and just let the chips fall where they may, you know. But they all have a lot to lose in that situation. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, especially now, in, you know, with Russia supplying weapons, you know, advanced weapons to to its allies in the Middle East and stuff. It's it's there's going to be unacceptable damages for everybody, you know. And we, you can't uh, overstate that idea that we mentioned before too much. Is that um, certainly in the past, you know, thirty, forty years, the only real conflicts. Uh, that have happened in the world uh, have been low-level kind of proxy proxy wars or wars where uh, the U.S. or some other power, but mainly the U.S., uh, <clears throat> attacked and invaded a country that could not defend itself. Um, 
in this new, brave new world where other countries have the power to effectively defend themselves and inflict serious, as they, and as they say, unacceptable damages on the on the aggressor, that's uh, it. Almost rules out uh, the possibility, or any, any, it rules out conventional war, you know, um, and it rules out the possibility, or rules out the, the this tradition of, of of the U.S. and its Western allies of of attacking countries, the, the uh, countries of interest, countries who are strategically important or important to American national interests, whatever, um, it rules rules out them uh, attacking those countries with, with impunity. Uh, they simply can't do it anymore. So what are they going to do? Uh, they're not, they don't have the cojones for uh, a real uh, shooting war, you know, real war of, of equals or uh, almost equals. So... Uh, I think you just fall back on on kind of terror attacks, you know, state-sponsored terror attacks to 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 destabilize, to stir things up. And um, but again, countries are almost have been because that's been going on for so long. Many countries that have been subjected to that are almost uh, to a large extent immunized against it, or at least immunized against the destabilizing, supposed destabilizing aspects of that, you know, because it's, uh, the world has seen so much of those kind of attacks and bombings, um, in recent years, it's, uh, well, they don't have their, they don't, they don't carry that same, uh, effect or, or influence anymore. Um, so even that is a, is a problem in terms of actually it being used to achieve some definitive, uh, um, you know, strategy or achieve some d- definitive goal. Uh, basically, everybody's got wise to, to to the way the U.S. has been ruining the world, uh, and even if they're able to keep doing what they've been doing in terms of these kind of state-sponsored terror attacks or jihadi or proxy forces going in and trying to shoot a place up, it's uh, especially after Syria. Now, it's uh, you've already tried that and it didn't work, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure they're even that stupid to try it again, you know. Yeah. Um. Certainly not in this region. I mean, but even look over in the Philippines. You know, even if that wasn't you know directly sponsored by by Saudi or whatever, if it was just contagion or something, uh, certainly they got their weapons from somewhere. The, the ISIS group in the Philippines um, that was taken care of by fairly effectively by by Duterte. You know, mm-hmm. um, so it's like everybody, all the people, because because they've tried because they launched this ISIS business and then the response from Russia and. And now, uh, and Syria and Iran and Iraq would just basically go in and say, okay, although, are they jihadis? Okay, let's kill them all. And it's just no holds barred, blow them all up. Well, that then sets an example for everybody else. Anybody else around the world who has the capability uh, to defend themselves against those kind of uh, proxy forces infiltrated in their country, they, they, they've, they just, they've seen the standard or the, the example that's been set now, which is you just, uh, you don't uh, hold back. You just uh, wipe them out as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually that's happening like uh well it happened in Syria and Iraq it's happening in Libya like ISIS controlled you know a fairly substantial uh bit of territory and they're still there but um like the Tobruk um you know military has been the Libyan army has been um you know advancing on ISIS and <clears throat> other than that like the only places you find actual like little ISIS pockets is apparently you know some in Afghanistan some in Yemen 
but you know negligible numbers and the only two other places where you have isis are in the golan heights and on the border with israel in egypt and uh-huh. so basically the only place the only the only last bastion of isis is on the two borders of israel and what country does nothing about it israel um i just find that pretty hilarious well, but, hmm. the isis the ISIS brand, perhaps, but sad, sadly, that what will probably happen, possibly, is that there'll be rebrandings and yeah. new, new proxy forces. I mean, actually, technically, officially, ISIS um, took over an island in the Philippines this mm-hmm. year, and they're still there. Yeah. But it, to to support the point that's being made, though, um, in this climate and with the example set, and in Philippines' case, given the leader they elected last year, he can get up and tell the people, you know, using curse words, we're going to wipe these bastards off the face of the earth. And everyone's like, yes, excellent, go, go, go. He has full support. There's no kind of qualms or, you know. No, but even, even if you've got collateral damage and stuff, people will accept it because they've seen all the ISIS videos over yeah. the past six years and they know that ISIS is this demonic entity. And anybody who goes under that name is like, I mean, what kind of support do these people think they have? Obviously, I mean, they're deluded, you know. I mean, you see these ISIS forces that were, who's getting, I mean, talk about low-level human beings. Who's who's able to get those people uh, over the past few months when the, when it was winding down, when they were being defeated, to still run into basically bombs from Russian uh, aircraft and from, from Syrian artillery and stuff, just to, just to run, you know, into bullets, basically, mm-hmm. for the cause? Like, I mean... I don't know who those people are who think, I mean, they're obviously massively brainwashed or deluded or just, you know, their IQs are about 60 or something. And they were just, they're just cannon fodder, you know, but they were able to get them to, to continue doing that. You know, it's, it's bizarre, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And the Russians even said that suicide bombings have gone up in like the past one or two months, you know, as, yeah. as ISIS loses ground, they, you know, they managed to get even more people to just go and like blow themselves up. Uh, yeah, you know. hopped, up, hopped up on drugs or something. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's pretty pretty sad, but um, that's not to say, you know, obviously the world's in a pretty bad state, you know. And we're talking about it here as though it's, uh, it's all good, but it's obviously in a pretty horrible state. And um, I suppose there's going to be more, uh, more kind of, they can have these jihadi kind of terror attacks any time they want, really. Uh, in in Europe in particular, um, and it creates a big a big storm, a big media storm. It creates it, it still has an effect. I think the people who are doing this want to what they what they kind of get off on is their ability to affect, you know, to 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 shock public opinion. Basically, you know, uh, they're basically like social engineers, and they like to kind of use this blunt force instrument to to beat the the head of the of the the body public basically and um, for some end you know because I think they just do it for control they just like being able to kind of cow people a little bit and manipulate them so I, I would expect that we're going to see more of that kind of stuff in, in Europe and I would, I'd say we're going to see more of these kind of shootings and social discord uh, in, in the US as well but uh, it is all coming apart at the seams for their grand, bizarre, psychopathic kind of plan, you know. Where, and it's obvious it was always going to be this way, you know, where you have this 
dastardly kind of plan to kind of, you know, remake countries in your own image or, or you know, have, you know, coups or, or send in proxy forces and uh, try and overthrow governments. And um, you can only do that for so long before people, at least the shock effect that it has on people is is no longer working anymore. You know, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not having the effect you want people to get. People normalize it effectively, you know. It's like you can you can only terror terrify people for so long before in the, with the same with the same tactics before they go. Uh, I'm not I'm not really terrified as much by that anymore, just because it's normal human psychology. It's normal animal psychology, you know. Uh, people just uh, get used to to the new status quo. Go oh, well, we'll just adapt and continue on with our lives as best we can in this new reality where bad things happen. And then, but what's your end? You have to ramp it up then afterwards. If it's not working anymore, you have to do something worse. But eventually, you know, what are you going to just blow everybody up or something? Or, I mean, <sighs> it's bizarre. The policy that these people have, their their mindset is just... Uh, the thing is, they, they have an endless supply of people willing to participate in these harebrained schemes. Um, just reading today that some 2,600 German nationals have signed up for the uh, neo-Nazi Azov battalions mm. to go kill some Ruskies. Mm-hmm. They love it. I mean, there's enough pool of people in Germany to create a separate new battalion. They're out there, you know, and they're, they're, they're kind of, well, they're, you could argue they're a byproduct of all the policies to date, right? The world's getting a scarier and crappier place, so it's going to produce these really messed up specimens. Right. On the other hand, they've always kind of been messed up specimens, and they kind of need something to do, and this is one way of, I suppose, employing them. So there'll always be a demand for some kind of war. Give us something. We'll take anything. I'll call myself a yeah. Banderite, ISIS, you know, Sunni Wahhabi, I don't care. Just well, I think that's give, me, part, give me some ideology to go and kill someone. Yeah, I think that's part of the, the the effect of the kind of social engineering and messing with people's heads and terrorizing people with with terrorism, basically that that they that they've been doing for the past fifteen or twenty years. And uh, what happens when when people in, in in countries are, you know, people start off with this kind of open, hopeful. Uh, view to the future and, 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 and they're open-minded about things and then whenever they the apparent response to that is we have this like with multiculturalism and opening the world up and we're all you know, globalization we're all one big happy family and for, for whatever reason manipulated let's say um, you get uh, an, a bad result from that it's, it's shocking and, and there's terrorism and that kind of stuff then people tend to revert back to uh, they kind of close down again so it's trying to get people to close down close in on themselves and that well, that, how that plays out in, in, in certain sections of, of the population in any given country is, is in kind of nationalistic ideas. And um, people get afraid. They tend to, you know, close themselves off and go back to basics, you know, go back to traditional values. And they, they start to look towards their own in-group, basically. Uh, and that's usually along racial or religious, whatever, lines. Uh, because the world is now, because they've seen that the world is a scary place and uh, diversity of people, etc., is um, is bad. It's 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 obviously bad, right? Because well, look at what happens when you have immigrants coming in, or when you have Islam spreading into uh, formerly dominant uh, Christian countries. Well, you get terrorism. They they're crazy. We're incompatible. 
So let's uh, let's reaffirm our own in-group ideals and values and culture and religion. I mean, yesterday I think uh, you had a big, pretty big uh, far-right um, nationalist march in Poland. There were something like thirty or forty thousand people on the streets, all under a banner of basically Polish nationalism, uh, <clears throat> and they were obviously against immigration and. Europe, Europe and Poland in particular being four white Christians and, or in Poland's case, Catholics, uh, and that's it, you know. So that kind of thing is, is probably the most dangerous. It's not so much that we're all going to be wiped out in some kind of nuclear war, but rather that uh, it seems to be going or pushing towards the direction of internal social divisions within countries. And obviously that is... Uh, Short of some kind, well, a nu- nuclear nuclear war is no good for anybody. It doesn't really. Everybody's dead, and that's it. It's it's not fun for these psycho reality creators. What's fun is getting people, setting people against each other. And if you can uh, get people within nation states to be kind of divided and at each other's at each other's throats over uh, ideologies, then I suppose that's that's what that's how these people get their jollies. These uh, social engineers get their jollies, you know, and they also solidify or their positions of of power, obviously, because when there's conflict or problems in a country, you need strong government to uh, deal with these problems, you know. Uh, So government today is really about creating problems within countries so that they can justify their own positions because they're sick with with greed, basically, and lust for power and control themselves. And they quickly realize that they need to justify their positions. And the way you justify your position is, you have to have problems in the country that needs a strong government like me with my big fat paycheck. Well, that, that kind of reminds me a little bit of a story uh, earlier in the week that came out with uh, NATO's plans to reconfigure its uh, Europe's infrastructure uh, to assist it in transporting arms and, and uh, just making it a more effective um, defense against Russian aggression uh, against Europe. And, um, you know, you've already had people in various places, Italy comes to mind, who've come out against NATO uh, in its uh, in its statements against Russia. Um, but like you were saying earlier, Joe, uh, you know, there is this kind of tendency among many people to just adjust to the new reality on the ground and go on with their lives. Um but it, it is interesting to see how relentless the Russian aggression meme is um, in this organization and, and how they are working with uh, EU and other kind of various uh, organizations to um, to continue in its, uh, in its narrative that, that Russia is somehow at the root of all evil, not unlike Iran, according to uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia. So um, it'll be interesting to see how how easy or difficult it is for for NATO to uh, continue um, kind of getting broad support and and uh, accruing this kind of bogus coalition of uh, forces that would uh, seek to defend Europe, uh, so they say, against uh, Russian aggression. Um, Did you see the report this week about NATO? Retooling European infrastructure, or something like that. Yeah, that, that's what yeah. I was. Uh, yeah, that's what right. I was thinking of. 
what was it they said, actually? Well, um, it it went beyond military stuff. It was... Yeah, so, so they basically want to reconfigure Europe to um, support mobilization of NATO forces from within Europe. Uh, and I don't remember all of the details, but the idea was that, uh, you know, they weren't just going to be this, this base here and there. They were going to, they were going to design, uh, ro- you know, they were going to build roads and bases um, that specifically made it easier for NATO as a fighting force to, to use Europe as a, uh, as a big forward base towards Russia, ostensibly. Um, and uh, I don't, I don't think it, you know, I like to go on Yahoo News occasionally and, and some other mainstream sites just to see what's covered and what isn't or how things are covered. And uh, gnarly a word about that. Um, so, you know, mm. all of these things are happening under radar. Um, and uh, it's just this, uh, it's just this relentless force that, that, has, that never, you know, in the face of all um facts continues to to beat the drum and uh and kind of build a build a case against military confrontation somewhere with uh with russia mm. yeah i don't know they're just trying to contain russia but russia incontainable i'm sorry but uh and the best they have is just to uh to push in, fr- in front of the people's faces the the threat of global nuclear war and it's like people should just ignore that you know (laughs) i found it here so stoltenberg said yeah so this isn't just about issuing military commands we also need to ensure that roads and bridges are strong enough to take our largest vehicles and that rail networks are equipped for the rapid deployment of tanks and heavy equipment (laughs) but that's that's because there were like five or six reports over the last couple of years where u.s tanks like Broke bridges, um, broke roads, broke train stations because they were they were the wrong size or something like that. And so I think it's more like it's it's basically an argument for the logistical ability to maneuver troops around around Europe. But um, I think in a strategic sense, it's not not just about it's not so much about an actual war showdown with Russia. It's about locking down Europe. What you got. Yeah. Can't let it go. <clears throat> yeah. Lock it down. Lock it all down. But reality's going to intrude, you know. Economic reality trumps trumps your, you know, your military installations around around Europe, whatever. Um, that's it's it's America's hedge against that, you know. Where at least uh, if Russia does kind of like make economic inroads in and stuff, we can, you know, because uh, we have these these. Uh, military installations around Europe and a presence there, you know, obviously, and military installations aren't just for military, they're also for intel operatives and all that kind of stuff, you know, so they can keep a keep a check on it for as long as possible. But the real impression you get is that it's just a, it's a, it's putting off the inevitable, inevitable basically, um, for for America, you know. Um, yeah, and as, as Red Fox in the forum said, to you now, don't you have to preface all that uh, NATO bashing that you just did with I'm a foreign agent, no? <laughs> Isn't it obvious? You should say it, though. You have to say it. You should have seen I how I check for the Kremlin. Yeah. yeah. 
I work for the Kremlin, and here's my opinion on NATO. <laughs> uh, I didn't give an opinion. I just I I cited Doltenberg. <laughs> so, well, but you're citing him as a Kremlin agent. Yeah. Right, which means that you could be interpreting his words. A quote is a quote, no? Through, through a Kremlin filter. Probably. Um, what about our other topic? What other topic? Trump goes to Asia. Yeah. Well, well the thing the thing annoyed me about... Uh, <clears throat> the thing that annoyed me... One thing that annoyed me about it was the reporting on what Trump said about Putin, uh, about Putin's... Apparently Putin, in their little few chats they had, unofficial chats they had, Putin said that uh, Trump asked him, did you hack our election, Mr. Putin? And Putin said, I'm very insulted by that silly um, statement, allegation, that you keep coming up with, your people keep coming up with, because uh, no, we didn't do it. Uh, he did nothing like that. And Trump, so Trump reported on this and said that he, uh, that Putin said that to him, and that when Putin said that, he really believed that Putin meant it. Uh, just about every, unsurprisingly, I have to preface this with unsurprisingly, uh, every mainstream Western media outlet reported that as Trump agrees with Putin, or Trump believes what Putin said. Trump believes that Putin did not, but Trump believes Putin when he says that he did not uh, hack, <laughs> hack the election. Um, but that's not what he said. And you're talking about journalists here so who supposedly have a, a good command of the English language. But it's pretty clear from the statement as recorded or reported by about Trump, about what he said, his quoted words, that he was saying that he believes that Putin believes. Uh, or that Putin is being honest, or since, not that he's being honest, but he believes that Putin believes that he uh, that he didn't hack the election. <laughs> he believes that he's sincere, basically. He believes that he's sincere in his belief that he that he's just not making it up. Uh, that's that's it's subtle, but it's very pretty different from what's reported in the well, has been reported over the past couple of days in the media that Trump believed Putin when he said he didn't hack the election. That's not what Trump, Trump said. He said, I believe that he believes it. Mm-hmm. I believe that Putin believes it when he says that. I, uh, he's being sincere. He keeps saying it, so I believe that he really thinks that he didn't do it. Maybe he did, unbeknownst to himself, or maybe someone else said it on his behalf. But when Putin says he didn't do it, he's, he seems sincere to me. He doesn't seem like he's bullshitting me. Uh, that's what he said. But of course, every single, I mean, they twisted the, art, the, the headlines in the article saying that Trump sides with Putin in on 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 Russian elections, on Russian hacking of US elections. Um but yeah, other than that, uh, it was great. Melania looked fabulous on the Great Wall. It was uh, huge. It, it was, was huge. It was huge. He went to he went to the Forbidden City. He actually went to Hawaii first, then he went to Japan. Yeah. South Korea. China. Went to China, China, China. Then Vietnam. And now he's in the Philippines. Yeah. It is a massive, like, I don't think Obama did such a single large tour. 
But he went to the Forbidden City, no? Um, he was busy with G, uh, but Melania went. Oh, no, sorry. Yes, Melania went to the war, but yes, they both went to the Forbidden City. Which that, is forbidden. That was notable. This is the ancient Chinese citadel within Beijing. That's notable. They never welcomed any state official there. They never held a state dinner right. there. They held a state dinner. Then they had a, a traditional Chinese opera after. I mean, they went, they pulled out all the stops. Right. Right from the get-go, the plane lands. This time they got the stairs right, and it's got a carpet on it. <laughs> uh, full band, the whole works. He pulls up then at the whatever government building, and there's another ceremony. Full band, even a military parade in addition to the band playing the anthems. Uh, they've got kids jumping up and down, waving the U.S. flag. Yeah, it, it was seriously like they went out of their way. They broke 70 years of Communist Party tradition yep. to actually, mm-hmm. well, uh, that in in having him at the Forbidden City, they've never done that because that's a well, communist thing, right? So it kind of signals a couple of things. One, extra special treatment for Donald Trump, mm-hmm. plus a kind of a change within themselves, perhaps, because. Remember, Xi has just recently reconfirmed, re-elected, whatever, as China's leader for the next five years. Um, I think it, it tells us a little bit more about China that, than just than whatever presentation they wanted to give to Trump. And what's incredible is that it's hardly picked up that fact that there was such an unusual welcome. It's yeah, hardly they, touched them. But they the don't US want media. to. They do it deliberately. Right. If Obama but, had had, but it, had was, that. it was shown. It was, these these were all events were all shown live on Chinese TV. Uh, yeah. But that says to me that that the that the Chinese are voting for Trump, basically. You know. Yeah, against the deep state. So and against the deep state, they're saying, okay, let's do business with this guy. Let let let's 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 empower him. Let's uh, let's support him as a person to the best because we've nothing to lose uh, to the best uh, or to the extent that that's possible and. Um, obviously, Russia is a bit more has a bit more difficulty in that, but certainly the Chinese are 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 doing that to, in my opinion, to um, to kind of stick it in a certain sense to the deep state to say we're going to go with this guy and talk with him. You know, of course, he's limited and controlled by uh, or limited in what he can do by these people behind the scenes, but we can still uh, support him. And put everything out, uh, you know, bring out the best, uh, the best flatware for him, the best China, uh, and the best China, the best China, and give show him a good time, basically, and, and increase his his profile. <clears throat> or, or I mean, this wasn't reported, as you're saying, but it should have been reported that he was giving a special, he was given a special honor by the Chinese. Of course, the Western media, most of it, does not want to say anything positive about Donald Trump, so they won't report on that. But so they, they, the media actively avoided saying that the Chinese uh, give a special honor to Donald Trump because that doesn't fit with their narrative that uh, he's an orange-faced uh, nightmare and he's not my president and I'm going to scream. Um, so, yeah, but who knows? I mean, obviously it's... I wonder, it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next three years if this actually changes in any way or if he's going to be continue, if he'll continue to be hamstrung for the next three years in the same way that he has been, you know, or if he'll ever break free, you know. The guy's still learning, obviously, you know. Well, just getting back for a second to Trump's non-meeting with Putin, um, like he, he did 
shake his hand vigorously during a photo shoot, and they did have a couple of kind of peripheral chats. But uh, there was a lot of talk about, um, for several weeks, a, a planned meeting where uh, Putin and Trump would sit down and uh, kind of hash out some more things about Ukraine and Syria and North Korea. And um, as as the time, as the conference was approaching, uh, you know, the press was coming to Lavrov and saying, well, you know, what's going on? When are you guys, when will uh, Putin and, and Trump get down to business and, and, and sit and discuss things? And Lavrov, in his frustration, came out and said, you know, why are you asking me? Why don't you ask the pencil pushers that work for Trump? And, you know, what he was what he was alluding to is the fact that um, uh, as the time approached uh, to actually, you know, set aside uh, a period of time where they would meet, um, the the Trump people were waffling and going back and forth about uh, about doing this and citing, you know, schedule differences between Putin and Trump. So there's been some observations made on that, and um, and some of them was uh, a few of them were, you know, a the Trump administration did not want to seem to be cozying up to, to Putin too much, uh, given the two and a half hour meeting that they had in, in uh, was it Paris uh, last June or, or, or May uh, or Germany? Um, and the other thing was that uh, there are certain people in Washington that don't want Trump hashing anything out with Putin. Uh, because if you discuss things, then you, you might have to make agreements that, that you would stick to that, that's, you know, have some semblance of sanity and rational, uh, diplomacy. So, uh, it, it looks as though even if Trump gave Putin a hearty handshake and, and, and had a few minutes of chatting here and there, uh, for various reasons, he, you know, didn't have the important conversations uh, with Putin that, that would have made the difference and, and would have kind of moved things forward in a constructive way. And, Although they uh, did come out and say, they did sign some agreement really quickly, apparently. They, apparently they had three three or four uh, chats. I mean, you never know how many chats they actually had, you know, off offline, if you know what I mean, off uh, on the sides of, of meetings and stuff. I, I think Peskov... Uh, Peskov said that they had a few that they, that they weren't able to have an actual bilateral meeting type thing, but that was uh, compensated for by three or four uh, uh, chats, informal chats that they had, and apparently they signed a or some memorandum or signed something to do with uh, with Syria, which you know was summed up by that both of them agreed that there was no military solution to uh, the situation in Syria, um, which you know obviously is going to annoy annoy some people, but I think a lot of people have accepted it now, you know. Um, certainly people in the deep state in the US, the backroom boys never accept anything and work their their dirty dirty plans uh, uh, regardless of what happens, but um, definitely, you know, big things have changed um, as a result of Russian um, involvement in the Middle East and also Chinese-Russian kind of cooperation. Uh, a lot of things have changed in, in, in Asia as well, you know. And um, if some sanity could prevail and the people in the U.S. would just uh, realize uh, the, the writings on the wall um, and, and do what they can to kind of incorporate themselves into the uh, the new kind of world order, then things would, go lot, things would go a lot more smoothly. But, I mean, 
unfortunately we can't really expect that to happen um, but yeah uh, I think we have to you know it is only the first year of his presidency not really even it's the first it's a year since he was elected but it's not even a full year of him being in office yet so and he'll probably learn a lot more and there's a lot more stuff to, a lot more water to go into the bridge between in the, in the next few years so um, we shall see Oh, by the way, some breaking news. There was a 7.2 earthquake on the Iran-Iraq border. Hmm. Interesting. Don't know what what uh, what the situation is with it yet, but that's a pretty big one. All right. I think we've uh, we've done those topics. No. Yes. Mm-hmm. For now. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's about it. All right. Okay. Well, we'll uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll be we'll be updating, obviously through the week on on Sat as as things happen and, and commenting on them. So keep an eye on that. Uh, but thanks for listening, uh, and we'll talk to you next week. See you next week. Bye bye. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.